1: Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to crime stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: You're listening to the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network, where we offer you podcasts of the supernatural and the unexplained. Get ready now for Shades of the Afterlife with Sandra Champlain. The thoughts and opinions expressed by the host are thoughts and
2: opinions only.
4: For over 25 years, I've been on a journey to prove the existence of life after death. On each episode, we'll discuss the reasons we now know that our loved ones have survived physical death, and so will we. Welcome to Shades of the Afterlife. There is a term that I have never used before on Shades of the Afterlife can you believe it, over 140 episodes. This term has been appearing quite a bit in conversations and internet searches, all of a sudden there it is. The term is terminal lucidity. I know that we've spoken about just before someone passes or the weeks they can be alert, see loved ones that are right there in the room with them, and they appear just like the real people, the doctors, the nurses, and families. But there's a closely related phenomena, and that's this terminal lucidity, which may involve loved ones coming to visit, or it may not. I remember the very first story i had ever heard of this, and I just kind of put it in the realm of deathbed visions. I had a wonderful conversation with a hospice chaplain named Steve Kearney, who I knew when I was cooking for the race teams. He knew I was interested in life after death, and he wanted to tell me the extraordinary story of when his father died. He told me that his father had been in a coma for months, and shortly before his death, he became alive, awake swung his legs over the bed. And of course, everybody's trying to stop him because he's hooked up to all these tubes. And he's looking as if looking into heaven. And he's saying, it's so beautiful there. And they said, dad, what do you see? And he started telling them people that he saw that were deceased. And then he said he saw a certain woman who had died during this man's coma. So he was never told that this lady died. he could see her there. What else can you see? And he felt like he heard Jesus saying that he only has a short time to live to do the things he wants to do because he wouldn't have his body too much longer. What did he want? He wanted an apple pie. He wanted his family together watching a football game. And he wanted a chocolate milkshake. With having all of those, the man was crystal clear lucid, alive, giving the family the feeling like he was back. And just a couple of nights later, he passed away. So terminal lucidity is when someone doesn't have proper brain or body function and comes alive shortly before death. The more I research this today, the more hospice Nurses and doctors and people putting comments under YouTube videos have experienced this with their loved ones. There have been cases of Alzheimer's patients who really have lost use of their mind, who haven't spoke, and again, they rally. They come back to life for just a very short time, but can have a conversation for an hour or two that makes sense, that's talking about life. They have memories. Now, how is this possible in a brain with very little brain function? There's something extraordinary going on here. This article comes from the Scientific American Magazine written by Jesse Baring. When my mother died in early 2000, we had a final farewell that some researchers might consider paranormal. At the time, it did strike me as remarkable. And after all these years, I still can't talk about it without getting emotional. The night before mom died at the age of 54, after a long battle with ovarian cancer, I was sleeping in my mother's bedroom alongside her. The truth was that I'd already grieved her loss a few days earlier, from the moment she lapsed into what the hospice nurses had assured us was an irretrievable coma. So at this point, waiting for her body to expire as a physical machine wasn't as difficult as the loss of her beforehand, which is when I'd completely broken down. It had all happened so quickly and I suppose being young and in denial about how imminent her death really was, I hadn't actually gotten around to telling her how very grateful I was to have had her as my mom and just how much I loved her. But then around 3 a.m., I awoke to find her reaching her hand out to me and she seemed very much aware. She was too weak to talk but her eyes communicated all. We spent about five minutes holding hands, me sobbing, kissing her cheeks, telling her everything I'd meant to say before but hadn't. Soon she closed her eyes again, this time for good. She died the next day. I didn't quite see the experience as supernatural when it happened, and I'm not sure I do today either. But I also didn't have a name for the experience then, in fact, one didn't even exist. It does now, called terminal lucidity. The term was coined by German biologist Michael Nam. He was the first to review in an article on the curious subject of cognitively impaired people becoming clear-headed as their death approaches. According to him, in cases of terminal lucidity, they have been recorded for millennia from accounts by classical scholars such as Hippocrates and Cicero to the 19th century medical luminaries like Benjamin Rush, who wrote the first American paper on mental illness. Here's how Nam defined terminal lucidity in that original article. The reemergence of normal or unusually enhanced mental abilities in dull, Unconscious or mentally ill patients shortly before their death, including considerable elevation of mood and spiritual affectation, or the ability to speak in a previously unusual, spiritualized, and elated manner. The author characterizes terminal lucidity as one of the more common but lesser known end of life experiences. On his list include deathbed visions, apparitions, near-death or out-of-body experiences, telepathic impressions, and so on. But terminal lucidity is a vague concept, needless to say. First of all, what exactly should qualify as the time period shortly before death? Minutes, hours, days, maybe months? One man who'd been completely catatonic for nearly two decades became almost normal and lucid just before he passed away. And the second subtype of terminal lucidity, the author tells us full mental clarity can appear quite abruptly and unexpectedly just hours or days before death. In one study, 70% of caretakers in a British nursing home said they'd personally observed people with dementia becoming lucid shortly before their deaths. A 92-year-old woman with advanced Alzheimer's disease, for instance, hadn't recognized her family for years. But the day before her death, she had a pleasantly bright conversation with them, recalling everyone's name. She was even aware of her own age and where she'd been living all of this time. Such incidents happen regularly. I'm going to pause reading this article right now because I found an excellent conversation between two researchers of life after death talking about terminal lucidity. So after the break, we will hear from them. I'd like to read you one more example. This woman says, In the mid-90s, with her eyesight rapidly going and her memory diminishing, my maternal grandmother, Kitty Lewis, moved into a care home after suffering a series of mini-strokes and being diagnosed with vascular dementia. From there, her behavior began to change. This prim, proper, polite, and warm woman for decades, a stalwart of whichever community she was in, had her personality twisted and transformed by dementia, and she became paranoid, aggressive, and verbally abusive. Her short-term memory was shot, and the rest of it was patchy. She would rarely know who we were as her family, and in the last couple of years, she was just angry, depressed, and confused, and she didn't want to see people. We visited anyway, sitting with her, while she wanted to die. Then in October, she was admitted into the hospital, having collapsed with a urinary tract infection. For a week, she was barely conscious, but on the Sunday when my parents, cousin, and I visited, she was sitting up in bed, smiling as we walked in. For the next two hours, she laughed and joked, completely cognitive, coherent, lucid. A lifetime of memory had returned, and we took full advantage of it as she regaled us with escapades from her past. My mom, who knew many of them, quietly verified everything she said. Her funny, eloquent, vibrant mother had returned. It all came back to her in one rush. It was like a bolt of lightning. The clouds cleared. After we left that afternoon, My grandma slipped into a semi-conscious state, soon not knowing who my mother was, and died within days. We live in what I call a human energy vehicle. We are the driver of the car. The car is our body. The driver is us, our soul. And this energy vehicle, our body, is so intelligent. We don't need to tell it when to breathe. We get a little signal when it's time to sleep, when it's time to eat. Do we know that there are trillions of cells in our body, each doing different things and how our heart, our liver, our kidneys, all of that functions without us having to be in control? I think for the dying process, whether it's terminal lucidity or whether it's seeing our loved ones appear, helping us cross that finish line, that the body and the mind and our consciousness has a plan for us. It's all regulated and it's all controlled and it's all just one more way of saying you are a miraculous being and you do not die. So let's go to the break and we'll be back. You're listening to Shades of the Afterlife on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network.
8: Start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Thanks for listening. Keep it here on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network.
2: It's Dr. Skye. Keep it right here on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network.
4: Welcome back to Shades of the Afterlife. I'm Sandra Champlain and we are talking about Terminal lucidity. Here's a name that you should know. An amazing author that I really respect is Jeffrey Mishlove. He's the author of such books as New Thinking Aloud, Is There Life After Death, and The Roots of Consciousness. He Has fascinating conversations and really digs about life after death, consciousness, and so much more. In fact, if you go to YouTube, just look up New Thinking Aloud. With Jeffrey Mishlove. But here's another good reason to listen to him. You may have heard of the Bigelow Institute's recent contest giving away a total of a million dollars for proof of the afterlife that our consciousness survives death. Jeffrey Mishlove is the first place winner, and the title of his entry is called Beyond the Brain. The Survival of Human Consciousness After Permanent Bodily Death. You can read it at bigelowinstitute.org. So what we're going to do is eavesdrop on a conversation he had with Dr. Stafford Betty on this topic of terminal lucidity. Now, Dr. Betty is a professor of religious studies at California State University and is the author of the books, The Afterlife Unveiled, What the Dead are Telling Us About Their World, When Did You Ever Become Less By Dying, Afterlife the Evidence, and more. So, let's listen.
10: Terminal lucidity, it's, you know, I think it's only been maybe in the last 10 years that I've even heard the term.
11: That's right. It wasn't invented until... 2009, 2009. Mm-hmm. Can you believe okay. that? Um, and yet, um, there have been cases of terminal lucidity in the literature for the last 120 years. Yes. Um, but um, there had never been a term used to baptize the phenomenon. Uh-huh. Well, I, I, s- know
10: I suppose uh, many people are just normally very lucid. Uh, as, as they get ill and as they die, it's not unusual for a a person to be
11: lucid unless they've suffered from some sort of a a brain injury. Exactly. Or illness. And, and that's what, um, that's what terminal lucidity is looking at. It's particularly looking at, uh, Alzheimer's patients. Mm -hmm. Take a woman who has, uh, lost all ability to communicate with her visitors, with her loved ones Mm -hmm. when they come. Mm -hmm. She doesn't recognize them. She doesn't know their name, she doesn't speak, she doesn't seem to be even aware of her world. Mm-hmm. She's just what we sometimes call a human vegetable. Mm-hmm. Right? And then for some strange reason, just before she dies and her loved ones have come to gather around the bed, she erupts into her old personality. Her brain is all but totally destroyed, but suddenly she is able to communicate with her loved ones. She speaks, she wonders about her grandchildren and how they're doing. Uh, she knows everyone's names. She's completely herself. This is an example of terminal lucidity. Right. And it happens, according to Dr. Alexander Butyani, who's looked into this more than anyone else alive, mm-hmm. it happens in about 5 to 10% of Alzheimer's cases. Mm-hmm.
10: Okay. Well, I can say it happened to my mother who- Tell me about that. My mother had Alzheimer's. She died uh, six years ago at the age of 90. Okay. And she was uh, somewhat coherent before her death. I mean, her memory was very, very bad, but she she always recognized me and my wife, Janelle, was with her at this time and she reports that my mother, just sort of sat up in the bed, and they had a lengthy conversation mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. over two hours, mm-hmm. in which my mother was her old self, like at least mm-hmm. more than ten years earlier, before this illness had uh, uh-huh. destroyed uh-huh. so much of her memory. Mm-hmm. And they talked about you know her marriage and her uh-huh. children, uh-huh. and how she was progressing with her disease, uh-huh. and uh, she had had a boyfriend who had died. A year earlier, and she was, her Alzheimer's had progressed so badly that she kept asking for him all the time, the whole year. She just could not digest Uh, the fact that he had died. I see. And, uh, but all of that was clear. She was
11: completely lucid. Right. That's terminal lucidity. How long uh, did it take before she died after that experience? Do you remember? Less than a week. Oh, okay. There it is. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it usually runs between a couple of weeks and just a matter of minutes. Yeah. There it is. Now, terminal lucidity is is not something that is confined to Alzheimer's. Victims. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who has had uh, a seriously damaged brain yeah. or a brain that's been eaten away by maybe cancer mm-hmm. uh, is capable unpredictably. We never know who they're going to turn out to be. My wife had
10: another similar experience with a a, a client of hers, a psychotherapy client who she had worked with for many many years who was a very serious alcoholic and who had uh, all sorts of emotional and physical problems and and attachments uh, due to the alcoholism. and uh, She died in childbirth. It was very tragic circumstances. But shortly before her death, I think it was the same day, in fact, or maybe the day before, she, like my mother, sat up in the hospital bed and they had a lengthy conversation. And the interesting thing is that she seemed emotionally, for the first time, totally clear, totally objective about herself, able to look at her own life and understand things that had eluded her in psychotherapy for years and years. And her greatest wish at that time was, oh, I wish everybody
11: could see me like this. Yeah, yeah. She knew that this was different. Yeah, that's another example. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me go back uh, into the past and um, dredge up a couple of, Famous cases. Okay. Um, a biologist, professor, the University of Freiburg in Germany, Michael Naum, mm-hmm. is responsible for bringing all of this stuff that we now call terminal lucidity out of the dark, mm-hmm. and wrote a long article for the Journal of Near Death Studies on famous cases that he now recognizes as being what we now call terminal lucidity. And the most famous case is that of a girl whose name was Ketta. K A T H E, Keta, mm-hmm. a German girl. And she had. With an
10: umlaut over the A. With an umlaut over the A, absolutely. Yeah.
11: <laughs> she had, uh, she had uh, been born profoundly disabled. Yeah. In, in, never capable of, as she grew older, of, of, of making any more movement than just sort of spasm- spasmodic jerks. She mm-hmm. had no control over her body. Mm-hmm. She had never learned a single word, mm-hmm. never spoken a word. Yeah. just a tragic case of someone whom you would say it was better had she not been born profoundly retarded profoundly retarded and she had been Hospitalized her entire life Mm -hmm. okay, just left there basically to rot away Mm -hmm. and I would say fortunately she contracted the disease of tuberculosis Mm -hmm. as a teenager and um, She was close to death and the most astonishing thing happened just before she died she became a lucid person speaking German, singing Christian hymns. And the, can you imagine the amazement of all of the staff? Somebody
10: who had never spoken a never word. Never spoken a word. Yeah, And, and, she, and I know this occurs. I had a nephew who had the same condition, born without a corpus callosum, right. brain
11: severely damaged. Unbelievable. Yeah. Anyway, there she was, and she was a transformed person. They spoke about how her face glowed with this kind of spirituality and up till this point it had been nothing but just you know mm-hmm. kind of animalistic yeah uh, the only kind of sounds she ever made were animalistic sounds
10: mm-hmm.
11: absolute transformation there's no way to explain uh, via conventional brain science how that could have happened yeah and that's true of Alzheimer' patients mm-hmm. you know their brains have been eaten up to such an extent that there is no way to explain these lucid it's moments it's generally considered irreversible it's irreversible it is and this leads a number of us to a very different kind of conclusion the reason these loose lucid moments happen is not because there's been a sudden creation of billions of new brain cells in this Just brain it's practically been the opposite destroyed. it's that the being the consciousness the person who really is has managed to loosen herself or himself from the brain, the soul. You the might soul, say. in other words, if you want to call it that, yeah. has managed to loosen itself from the brain, and that has made it possible for this this remarkable transcendence. And loosen from the brain, but still in control of the vocal cords That's somehow. Right. There, somehow, it's very mysterious how this all works. Yeah. Doctor Bagnani uses a wonderful uh, analogy. He talks of the consciousness. Or the soul, if you will, the spiritual mm-hmm. self as being like the sun in eclipse. Mm-hmm. And the moon is causing the eclipse. Yeah. If you move, and the moon, of course, is like the sick brain. Mm-hmm. You remove the moon or the sick brain, then the sun shines. There was never anything wrong with the sun in the first place. It's mm-hmm. just that it couldn't communicate because it was obstructed by the sick brain. So you, in
10: a sense, regard the cases of terminal lucidity as right. evidence for the notion mm-hmm. that the spirit or mind or psyche or right. consciousness okay. can operate independently of the soma or the
11: body or the yes. uh, nervous system and brain. That's exactly right. It's that, sort of a dualist it's position. A dualist, exactly so, and it is one of the of the nine types of evidence for. Survival of death yeah. that I go through mm-hmm. in my book. It's I think it's the weakest of them, but I think still it's very suggestive. Mm-hmm. It becomes more suggestive when you look at the research done by uh, a doctor in Britain named John Lorber. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the head of a hospital, or a, I guess it was a hospital. Six hundred hydrocephalics were yes. were kept. Okay. Okay, and these are people with big heads water on the brain and in many of these cases the the brain has almost completely disappeared Mm -hmm. the uh, the fluid has basically taken the place of the brain Mm -hmm.
4: I know you're on the edge of your seat waiting for him to finish the story but we have to take a break so don't go anywhere we'll be right back You're listening to Shades of the Afterlife on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. The Internet is an extraordinary resource that links our children to a world of information, experiences, and ideas. It can also expose them to risk. Teach your children the basic safety rules of the virtual world. Our children are everything. Do everything for them.
2: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded... The Apollo Jim murders. I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert.
6: It's just a shame, you know, that they took them from us.
2: Experience this investigation in a truly unique way knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh,
7: my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective with um, Maryland Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger.
8: Start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Hi, this is Ouija Board expert Karen A. Dahlman, and you're listening to the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network.
11: Hi, this is ufologist Kevin Randall, and you're listening to the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network.
4: Welcome back to Shades of the Afterlife. I'm Sandra Champlain, and we are eavesdropping on a very interesting conversation between doctors Stafford Betty and Jeffrey Mishlove on something called terminal lucidity. Just before someone passes away, even if they have had no brain function, can come back to life. Let's continue his story. Uh,
11: A doctor in Britain named John
4: Lorber. He was the head
11: of a hospital, six hundred hydrocephalics were yes. were kept. Okay. Okay, and these are people with big heads, water on the brain. Yes. And many of these cases the, the brain has almost completely disappeared. Mm-hmm. The fluid has basically taken the place of the brain. Mm-hmm. In thirty out of six hundred cases, the IQs of these people, Mm -hmm. with very little brain left, is a hundred or more. Mm -hmm. That's what he was able to determine. In one case, his star pupil had only 5% of a normal brain, Mm -hmm. and an IQ of 126 was functioning as a normal, intelligent person. Uh, And that leads him to believe, and it leads me to believe, that the question, is the brain really necessary? Mm -hmm. Uh, should be asked, because in a few cases it obviously isn't necessary, and uh, that seems to be supportive of the thesis that who we really are is not brain dependent.
10: Well, there are a number of other cases in the literature of people mm-hmm. who suffered from major uh, brain damage. I remember there's a famous case from the 19th century of okay. a railroad <laughs> road worker who had a a, a railroad spike go right through his right. head.
11: Right. Exactly so. And, and was able to
10: function normally.
11: Exactly so. Right. There's another case uh, that uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Nam on Earth of a woman uh, who was, had been in, in an asylum for eight years, mm-hmm. and she had some kind of brain damage. Uh, it was never said what was the cause of it, but she was had turned into a, an, an appalling human being. Yeah. The only thing that ever came out of her mouth While in this asylum for eight years, were horrible curses, Mm. and she also uh, managed to develop a particular skill of spitting very accurately on the shoes of the priest or the doctor who came to visit her. Uh She was uncannily accurate with her (laughs) Uh spitting. All right, all right. And so, shortly before she died, she had a complete transformation of character and personality. she remembered all of those episodes of spitting. She remembered mm-hmm. all of those cursings. And she was profoundly sorry for them. Yes, She felt that she was not in control. She was aware of what was happening, mm-hmm. but she didn't feel that she was in control. Mm-hmm. It just suggests the number of ways that, that uh, terminal lucidity can manifest itself. Mm-hmm. And it did in this instance in a very different way. Well, when we think about brain function, right? One of one of the intriguing
10: things to me, for example, is uh, parrots. Parrots are animals that are highly intelligent. They can speak, right. and and sometimes acquire a large vocabulary. And uh, their speech is often in context; it makes sense. Right. Uh, and yet, they have tiny, tiny
11: little brains. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> That's true. Maybe even the dinosaurs were smarter than we give them credit for. They also had tiny brains. <laughs> well, and we live in an era of
10: computer technology where the processors are getting smaller and smaller yeah, all true. the time and yet more and more powerful. I know. It's, so, so the size of the brain may not be as determinative mm-hmm. as was once thought where we do all of
11: these ratios between the brain mass and the body right. Exactly so. That does appear to be the case uh, when we look at uh, Lorber's research. Mm -hmm. That really does appear to be the case. Only in 5% of the cases, let that be said, you know, the other 95% were pretty much uh, lost in their hydrocephalic fluid and they were not able to function. Mm -hmm. But this 5% were able to function curiously for reasons we can't understand with very damaged brains or very tiny brains. Mm Who knows why? Yeah. Now, earlier you
10: and I were having a conversation about the relationship between terminal lucidity right. and deathbed visions. Okay. And you pointed out to me you thought these are very different.
11: Yeah. And we had a little disagreement on this. Yeah. I would say this, that you know, with in deathbed visions, the uh, the patient, the dying person, is talking uh, lucidly. Uh, two spirits that mm-hmm. yeah, he or she sees mm-hmm. visiting her or him in the room, right. in the hospital room. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whereas in terminal lucidity, um, there isn't ever any mention of visiting paranormal entities. That seems a little odd, I mean if 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 normal people
10: who are dying experience these visions, why wouldn't a a person who is becoming lucid prior to death also experience them? (laughs) That's a
11: good question. Uh, I guess the answer would be that they uh, already have so much on their plate, mm-hmm. all right? And Just they, for they them to become normal and speak to people yeah. around them. So they have
10: other priorities. They have right. other priorities, I at, would think. At the time. And and right. one priority that obviously a dying person will have is to kind of complete the
11: communication at an emotional level with people. With people around them, with yeah. their loved ones. Yeah. You know, very much in this world not in the next world mm-hmm. though there's nothing of course that would rule that possibility out Jeff I have to yeah. grant you that yeah. I just haven't come across a case like that yet
10: mm-hmm well And, of course, the typical case where you'd even want to remark that somebody is especially lucid prior to their death is because they've had some disease or or damage to their brain or nervous system that would make that unusual in the first place. Exactly so. That would be assumed
11: uh, before you would use that uh, that phrase. Because uh, people who are having deathbed visions are all lucid. That's right. They're normal people. They've not had damaged brains and mm-hmm. and uh, their, <laughs> their experiences are extraordinary enough and mm-hmm. we talked about that on another program, yeah. uh, but uh, it's not quite the same thing uh, as, uh, as terminal lucidity. Mm-hmm. So I remember another case, one that was written up uh, ten years ago, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact, in, uh, in, in Time Magazine, mm-hmm. of all things. But apparently, it didn't really have much of an impact on people. It certainly had an impact on me mm-hmm. because it was a classic case of terminal lucidity. Here was a man who had contracted cancer. It had, um, what is the term when it goes all over the place? Metastasized. Metastasized, right. Yes. It had metastasized and it completely eaten away his brain. Mm-hmm. He had almost nothing left, there was mm-hmm. nothing to communicate with and uh, he, he again was just a human vegetable and mm-hmm. his dear ones came to say goodbye to him just on the point of death and he had this incredible lucidity the doctor who was in charge of the case was astounded and was convinced though he's not a religious person that the mind somehow was able to mm-hmm. bore through that sick brain yeah. uh force itself out and say goodbye mm-hmm. to his loved ones. Mm-hmm. That was the, he used, he, the words he used, it forced itself through that sick brain. Yeah. Uh, it didn't just jettison it, but forced its way through. I like that way of speaking it and it just uh, suggests how relatively rare terminal lucidity is. Keep in mind that um, somewhere between 90 to 95 percent of advanced Alzheimer's cases do not experience mm-hmm. terminal lucidity, maybe because it's just too hard to do, who knows. Yeah. I can
10: I can imagine that, right. but it it surely gives one pause to think about the
11: consciousness and the brain as being very distinct from each it other. It does. It does, and that of course is uh, what I am trying to show in my book, and it's the the last of the chapters coming mm-hmm. out of psychical research or paranormal research, mm-hmm. and I think it has uh, a statement to make. It's very suggestive. Doesn't prove, but it's very suggestive. And I hope that um, Dr. Banjani will be able to come Mm -hmm. up with more and more evidence that supports this conclusion. Uh, And he is, I've written him, he is very open to Mm -hmm. this uh, possibility, that this is a kind of evidence for the soul. Yeah.
10: Well, it's not so different than uh, evidence, let's say, from extrasensory perception or remote viewing where a, a normal person in their normal state of consciousness is able to kind of uh, reach out with their mind and acquire information right. from distant points in space and time that would
11: never be accessible through normal sensory means. Yeah, well, you know, the paranormal is the paranormal. Mm-hmm. And so, um, what you're doing is linking these various extraordinary, unexplainable situations together. They all suggest that uh, our life is more vertical than we think. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not flatlanders. And uh, our our good friends who are materialists or physicalists, I refer to them at least privately, as Flatlanders, they're not. They, they need to verticalize their life. Well, and I think you can still, to be honest, you could be a physicalist
10: right. like my friend Ed May, who's okay. been on this yes. program, yes. and and still, Ed, Ed disagrees. He thinks that if I come up with solid evidence for survival that right. cannot be explained by what we call living agent psi, right. that that would disprove his physicalism. But right. but I think no. I think that physicalism can accommodate it, if we uh, take a look at uh, all of this work going on in higher mathematics and in string theory involving okay. oh. uh, higher dimensions of space, right. hyperspace, Right. if we allow mm-hmm. space to be much more complex than yes. we normally think yes. of it, yes. uh, then we could accommodate... Uh, a, a kind of physicalism anyway. A kind of uh, an afterlife. and, and mm-hmm. as, as you've talked about yeah. it yourself, uh, the communications from the other side mm-hmm. say it's very similar to it our is. physical existence, right, which
11: suggests they, that it's kind of physical. It is. It is kind of physical. Uh, I, I would prefer to say that it's kind of material. Uh, they they often speak of vibrations. Yeah. It's, it's it's a kind of a, a physics a physics of the afterworld vibrates at a level that mm-hmm. our senses cannot accommodate, right, right. cannot relate to, and it is not a purely spiritual environment. It is a world of beauty uh, that the senses can appreciate that we can walk in, mm-hmm. uh, all of that uh, is, uh, is asserted by, by spirits speaking through legitimate mediums. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, at some
4: point, maybe there will be a physics of the astral. I think you can agree. That was a pretty interesting conversation. you want to check out Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove and Dr. Stafford Betty, To a long-time explorers into the world of the afterlife so let's go to our next break and we'll come back with some more stories you're listening to shades of the afterlife on the iheart radio and coast to coast am paranormal podcast network
5: We're happy to let you know that our Coast to Coast AM official YouTube channel has now reached 300,000 subscribers. You can listen to the first hour of recent and past shows all for free. So head on over to AM.com and hit the YouTube icon at the top of the page. This is free show audio, so don't wait. Coast to Coast AM.com is where you want to be.
2: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded,
9: This is afterlife expert Daniel Brakley, and you're listening to the iHeart Radio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network.
4: Welcome back to Shades of the Afterlife. I'm Sandra Champlain. We have been talking about. Terminal lucidity. Hospice workers call this rallying, R-A-L-L-Y. People rally or can rally just before they pass. What I'd like to do now is play an old recording for you of hospice nurses. Now, these are not examples of terminal lucidity, but they are examples of these deathbed visions. And they're precious. And I just think they'll make you feel good. And I know for me, it just reminds me that we go on and that loved ones are there to greet us. So let's listen.
11: By working with the dying, hospice nurses gain an insight into death and the opportunity to witness the signs of a life beyond our own.
0: I had one gentleman uh, three months after I started working in hospice I thought, I can't do this anymore, this is just too much, I'm going to get burned out, or it's just too stressful. And um, so just as I was really trying to debate whether I was going to leave this field or not, um, I had an experience that just kind of blew me away. And one of the LPNs came up to me and said, um, Mr. So-and-so just died and so i took that information and we said all right we'll call a physician and call a coroner and get all the information that we need and i was walking down the hall making bed checks and sure everybody was okay and this one old fellow was um, climbing out of bed he was really out of pain control and um i was thinking you know we need to just get him settled down and um I walked into the room and I said, let me help you get taken care of. And he said, i got to get out of here. And I said, I understand, you know. And he said, I I have to die. And I said, you know, I would probably want to die too if I had that much pain. And let me help you. Let me see what we can do. He said, no, you don't understand. He said, I have to die. And I said, well, I don't know where it came from. I said, well, you have to wait till you get your own invitation. Sometimes just because we want to die doesn't mean we get to die. We have to wait until till it's time well that guy down there just got his invitation he said I knew him from Lyman and I said what do you mean and he said well he just shuffled by here and I <laughs> here on the back of my neck stood up and I said uh, I thought that was a curious term shuffle by and um he said I, I want you to go get my son he said i knew him i knew him from Lyman when we were kids and he said "And he just shuffled by and he points from his door to the window and how it will cross in front of his bed and i thought boy there's a lot i don't know yet i had a kid that
1: um i lost last week who saw horses that he saw a horse and his dream was about two weeks before he died he was on this big brown horse and they were going through this field, and it was very smooth. It wasn't like a gallop, but they weren't flying. And he said that all of a sudden they kind of jumped over a barrier, and when they landed, they landed in a riverbank that had overflowed its, its beds. And it stopped. The horse stopped and turned sideways waiting for this kid to tell him which way to go, whether to go into the woods or out of the woods. And I asked him which way he chose, and he said, well, we went out. And I said, what do you think would have happened if you'd gone into the woods? He said, I think I'd have been gone. And I told him I thought he, had, he would too. And I told him that that horse would probably come back for him. When it was time for him to go, that horse would be the one to come back. Well, that afternoon, his mom was washing dishes, and the horse came. And she went to talk to him. And she asked David if his horse was there, and he said yes. And she said, I think he's probably here to get you. And she said, I think so, too. And within two hours, he had, he had gone. He had died on his horse.
12: You, you feel a presence. You feel something is in the room. You know that there's something there. Um, and, and one time, there was this man. And he was really, really close to death. And um, he was very, very weak. And, and he looked up. And he, he was looking at something. And he looked very, very scared. And the nurse said to him, um, it's OK. They're there to um, help you. They're, they won't hurt you. And, and he put his hand up. And, and he had his hand up like somebody was holding it. And he did this for a few minutes. And there is no way this man had the strength to hold his hand up by himself. And he died just a few minutes later,
0: too. So there's something. I had one really neat fellow um that we were taking um to the hospice unit and um he was really close to dying and his um his son was nearby this poor guy went through an incredible bath from the nurse I mean, and he didn't move at all didn't even blink an eye so we would say he was unresponsive and as we were walking down the hall pushing his bed down the hall he opened his eyes and he looked straight up and his little toothless mouth and he went oh, and waved and then just um, smiled and closed his eyes and five minutes later he was gone. I don't know who he was waving at, but that's not uncommon.
11: As death approaches, patients may have visions of angels or see tunnels of white light. Other people receive angelic comfort
3: from someone they already know.
0: Patients who are closer to their dying time will see those who have already died, oftentimes. They'll talk about dead grandparents sitting at their bedside, brothers who've died before. Um, I'm not so certain that we just see spirits running around. I don't really believe that. I've never heard anything that scary, but I have heard of a lot of patients who are very afraid of dying talk about seeing a father-in-law in in the kitchen. And that would scare me out of my mind, but they're not afraid. And it really made me realize about how they're just sort of drifting to the other side they have one foot here and one foot somewhere else and a patient who's very frightened will tell you that and yet for some reason it doesn't bother them that bothered me
12: mary was a 52 year old woman um she had lou Gehrig's disease and um it was it was getting pretty bad she was pretty close to death and the muscles in her throat were closing up they weren't working very well and she had this fear that she was going to drown Um, which is essentially was a real possibility for her. And one of her last wish was that her mother not be told. Her mother was 90 years old, and her mother, she liked to be called Grandma Rose, and she just said, this is too hard for a mother to go through, to watch a child die, and especially the way I'm dying. I don't want my mother to know. Now, the family was in conflict with this, but it was her last wish, so what could they do and then the story as Grandma Rose tells me is she was she lived in Texas and one night she went to bed she was getting into bed and she saw her husband standing there and her husband had been dead for 20 years but she said that he was as real to her her as I am to you and he said Rose I've come to take Mary home and at that point Grandma Rose she just started to scream and said no no please let me go back and hold my baby one more time don't take her until I've, I've gone and I've held her and I've said goodbye and I've kissed her please don't do that and so he just kind of smiled and, and faded away and she knew at that point that he would allow that so she got on the next plane and she came to Denver and um, for three days she stayed with her daughter and she told her stories and she combed her hair and she gave her bath and she was holding her daughter um, when she died and, and I was there and she just looked at me and she said, you know, I brought her into the world and it's only right that I'm with her when she goes out. And, and that would have never happened if Mary's husband wouldn't have come, come to her and told her that he was taking her home
0: like one person said to me, oh, "It's easy for you to say it's going to be peaceful. You're not going to die." You know, and I you know you're right. All I know is what I see, and all I know is that somewhere along the line, you're not going to be afraid anymore. Somewhere in that last those last hours, it's going to go away. And somebody'll throw you a lifeline.
4: I'm sitting here right now thinking just how special this is. We really do go on and loved ones Come to greet us, or animals. I want to read to you now just a couple of quick things. This lady says, My mom looked out the window of her hospice room and said she saw all of the dogs she ever had in her entire life from the time she was a child playing outside in the courtyard. She looked so happy, and she smiled. And then she passed away. And another, My father passed away two weeks ago. He was 97 and in hospice. He had basically been non-responsive for weeks. Two days before he died, he had about six lucid hours. He woke up continually. He asked for food, asked for a bowl of ice cream, and wanted to drink his nightly martini, which he did. He was laughing and joking and very much himself. And then two days later, he died. I know you may be a new listener, or you may be a long time listener, but for the past 140 plus episodes, I've been trying to give you my all. Not each one of us is going to witness a loved one have one of these experiences, but through all these hours of episodes to give you reasons to believe and have faith that you are an immortal soul having a human experience, you are so much bigger and wiser than you could ever imagine. We are trapped by this little voice in our head that tries to convince us that we are just human, but that's not true. We are so much bigger. There's more to life than meets the eye and more to you than you know. Right now, you are surrounded by invisible cheerleaders who know how hard it is to live a human life. They will be there when it's your time, but not too soon, to help you across the veil to probably the biggest standing ovation that you've crossed over and completed this life. Make the most of it while you're here. There's things that we can't do over there. There are things that we can learn over here that really add depth to our soul. So take up every experience you can. With that a reminder, our home base is wedontdie.com. Please come visit me on one of our Sunday gatherings or take a course or just check out other past episodes or join our Facebook group. I'm Sandra Champlain. Thank you for listening to Shades of the Afterlife on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network.
3: Thanks for listening to the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. Make sure and check out all our shows on the iHeartRadio app or by going to iHeartRadio.com.
8: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.
0: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do.
1: I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.